other things uh, too um, some good news the president signs a 2.3 trillion relief and spending bill hey I don't know if you heard but we just had a big Unfolding Spygate investigations. It's just been revealed. With this one. <laughs> it's like I keep having to update. So I'm going to combine a couple with this one as soon as it uh, begins. Welcome to NTD News. I'm Kevin Hogan. Here are today's top stories. President Trump signs the $2.3 trillion spending bill, including money for pandemic relief, but he demands Congress revisit the amount Americans will receive in direct stimulus checks. We have updates on the Christmas Day blast in Nashville, Tennessee. Authorities identified the suspect and say he acted alone. Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani warns new, new information will shock America this January. He says it will expose false reporting on election fraud and states will want to decertify their results. And nine Georgia citizens are suing Fulton County election officials over allegedly counting ballots unsupervised on election night. The group wants a forensic audit to check the authenticity of the ballots. And Michigan's attorney general wants to sanction lawyers challenging election results. President Trump says she is the one who needs to be sanctioned. So I'm going to do um, a quick run through of some highlighted areas here. And then I'll just um, post them all together. I'm a doctor for the NHS. I've been working with the NHS since 2018. And I was a pregnant doctor working during the pandemic at the time. And I'm here today because I think it's very important we bring the truth out. There have been a lot of errors during the pandemic and it's cost human lives. A lot of people have died senselessly. When the pandemic happened earlier this year, I saw it go through all the different countries and a part of me believed that our country will be prepared we're a leading country in a lot of areas, especially in the field of science and medicine. So I thought nothing could go wrong in Great Britain. And I had faith in the government. I had faith that they would protect doctors and healthcare workers so that we could protect our patients. They're not showing us how many healthcare workers have been ill in ITU. They're not showing us how many domestic cleaners have died. They're not showing any of that. I am not allowed to speak to anybody in the media. And that made me very upset. When the first healthcare worker died, they died in a COVID ward. They 
they were infected. And the only way they could have been infected was if they didn't have the right protection. In my husband's own hospital, a pregnant nurse died. This is one healthcare worker. To date, we have 620 healthcare workers who've died. Driving to work every day, I had a fear. I didn't know what I was exposing myself to or my unborn child to. And if something had happened, I would have never been able to forgive myself. I asked for risk assessments. I asked to be changed to a different department. But my concerns weren't being heard because there wasn't enough evidence to show that pregnant women won't be at any risk or neither would the unborn child. And this is why I realized that not only am I being silenced, my own managers were following my social media they were tracking everything I was saying, everything I was doing. I received phone calls with threats. And I was also told that if I didn't show up to my long shifts, I wouldn't be paid as, as I usually am. <laughs> they don't know I'm coming today because they have told me that I have to go through them if I want to speak to any media. These are the people who are trying to create a sort of propaganda they're putting out these briefings in the hospital and posters saying we've had this many patients who were COVID positive and we've discharged them. But they're not showing the reality. And that's what they're fearful of. They're all just yes men to the government and they are trying to hide the reality. If as doctors were being silenced in our own hospitals, where does that leave us as a country? What kind of democracy are we living in? I mean, these are the kind of things that we would see in in strict regimes like North Korea. This is happening within our own country. As a doctor, I was working during the pandemic until April. So January, February, March, April, these four months, not once did I get a mask fitting. I had nothing on that ward. It left me in a situation where I had to look at my own protection or the patient. And every single day, the guidelines were changing. One day we were told the full gown was okay. The next day we were told that a plastic apron is okay. A penny was good enough to protect ourselves from a deadly virus. We knew that all of these changes in the guidelines were based on politics because they just didn't have the right amount of PPE, but nobody would ever use these words. We don't have enough. If I went into a patient who was COVID positive and he coughed in between the consultation, then what? Last year in July, when they did a, a full investigation into how much protective gear they have, they realized that there wasn't enough if a pandemic had hit us. Nothing was done. Within our own country, within the UK, there were so many manufacturers who had the PPE that we required. They were sitting in their warehouses, but our government decided to order PPE from Burma, from Turkey. And when they came, they were also faulty. When we looked into the PPE the government had, they were out of date. They were expired. As a doctor walking into your work, opening a surgical mask box and seeing that the expiry date had a sticker replaced on top of it. How do you think that makes us feel? I think the biggest issue now is how can we help healthcare workers? Because this pandemic has taken a huge psychological toll on everybody. We've lost faith in our government. A lot of us have even lost the love that we had and the passion that we've had for our jobs. And I don't know if we can, we can recover from this. The government have lied to us and they have to be held accountable. And we have to seek justice for those families who've lost their loved ones.
These ministers have blood on their hands. Yes, they do. They have killed people. Yes, they do. And they're still sitting in the same office. And this has to change. I totally agree with her. They do have blood on their hands. What, you know, let's never forget and let's keep pressing on. Okay, the um, Trump team wins a big one, so let's do something positive. This is really good news. Smiles event. Enjoy custom crafted dentures made at our on site labs and ready in as little as a day for only $29 per month per arch with 60 months financing. Call 1 800 Aspen Dental or book online today. News that we had throughout the day. There was a big moment uh, that happened uh, just moments ago that we want to bring your attention to. Some stations might not be covering this, so we do, and we bring you everything that's happening in the world of news. It was a big win right now that they are calling it the trump campaign is calling this one a big win in pennsylvania as the pennsylvania court secretary of state lacked authority to change deadline two days before election day a pennsylvania judge ruled in favor of the trump campaign today ordering that the state may not count ballots where the voters needed to provide proof of identification and failed to do so by november november 9th State law said that voters have until six days after the election this year, that was November 9th, to cure, cure problems regarding a lack of proof of identification. After the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that mail-in ballots could be accepted three days after Election Day, Pennsylvania Secretary of State Kathy Bukvar submitted a guidance with said proof of identification it could be provided up until November 12th, which is six days from the ballot acceptance deadline. That guidance was issued two days before Election Day. The court concludes that respondent Kathy Bukvar, in her official capacity as Secretary of the Commonwealth, lacked statutory authority to issue the November 1st, 2020 guidance to Respondents County Board of elections insofar as the guidance purported to change the deadline for certain electors to verify proof of identification, Judge Mary Hannah Leavitt said in a court order. This was in line with the Trump campaign's argument, which was that there was no basis in the state's law to extend the identification deadline and that Bookvar did not have the power to unilaterally change it. The court had previously ordered that all ballots where voters provided proof of identification between November 10th and 12th should be segregated until a ruling was issued determining what should be done with them. Today, Olivet ruled uh, that those ballots shall not be counted. This was one of several legal challenges the Trump campaign is bringing in Pennsylvania. On Friday, they are scheduled to have a hearing over thousands of ballots that they claim were improperly counted despite lacking required information. Additionally, and this could be a big one, the campaign awaits 
awaits action from the Supreme Court regarding whether the Pennsylvania Supreme Court acted properly in granting uh, that three-day extension for accepting mail-in ballots there. So we'll keep an eye on that for you. All the big breaking news right here on News Now from Fox. When it's happening now and it's happening with the news, you know we got you covered right here on News Now from Fox, everybody. We continue to... Okay, so that's some good news. Um, slowly but surely, he's um, turning over some of these states, which is what we want him to do. So, never lose hope. You just never know. Um, let's see. I want to put all the little ones together. Um... Well, I might have to update because I have one that I want you to listen to and it's it's a long one. The updating process is just horrendous. <laughs> I'm trying to get around it. It looks like there's no way. Okay. Did, did you did you guys hear about the Nashville explosion? I think I did tell you about that. And and the uh, Trump signed the two point three trillion relief and spending bill. And um, okay, they're saying uh, coming war on China. So let's listen to that. Oh, it's a long one. Okay, I had to cancel it. It's two hours. Um, let's see about this one. Is that the same thing? Are you kidding me? sure what this is exactly. Between late December 1989 and late January 1990, the United States launched Operation Just Cause to invade Panama and oust the formerly CIA-supported military dictator Manuel Noriega. As the sun rose on December 20th, Multiple U.S. Special Operations Units initiated strategic attacks throughout the country against Panama's defense forces and Noriega's personal property. A particular priority was the retrieval of a man codenamed Precious Cargo. This would be the task of America's Delta Force in a mission known as Operation Acid Gambit. 
Muse was an American veteran who'd been involved in earlier plots to overthrow the oppressive military government led by Noriega. Muse had grown up in Panama and then lived in the United States with his wife, a Department of Defense Education Activity teacher. After his military service was over, he returned to Panama, where he aided American anti-Noriega efforts by setting up an underground radio station to fight against the regime. However, a Panamanian news organization discovered that he was working for the CIA, and the Panamanian government arrested him. He was sent to Carcel Modelo, an infamous prison used by the regime to house political adversaries and plenty of innocent people. Among Panamanians, it was known as Crime University, since most inmates would become worse criminals once their sentence was over. The prison was built for 250 people, was expanded to house 450 prisoners, and ended up having over a thousand throughout the years. Muse spent nine months in solitary confinement, waiting for his country to rescue him. President George H.W. Bush decided in favor of a rescue mission, after an American military doctor who had been allowed inside the prison smuggled out a letter from Muse. Twenty-three Delta Force operators were assigned to carry out the raid, with support from Night Stalkers. Still, although the mission was planned separately, it was postponed until the United States was ready to carry out Operation Just Cause.
At the time, around 35,000 American civilians resided in the antagonistic country. As a second goal, Bush claimed to be protecting democracy and the human rights of Panamanians. In third place, with the accusations of drug trafficking and money laundering, standing against Noriega and his administration. Finally, Bush wanted to maintain the Torrijos-Carter treaties, sustain the neutral and continuous use of the Panama Canal for all nations. According to Congress and some legal experts, the treaty allowed the U.S. military to intervene because Noriega threatened the neutrality of one of the most important trade routes in the world. The invasion of the Latin American nation began at 1 a.m. local time on December 20th. The broader Operation Justice required the entry of considerable manpower into Panama. Over 27,685 troops arrived on site throughout the day and following weeks, along with more than 300 military planes. The 317th Tactical Airlift Wing transported many of the soldiers aboard C-130 Hercules aircraft. Among the military vehicles deployed to Central America were the Humvee utility vehicles and the F-117A Nighthawk planes. It was their first combat deployment, as well as that of the AH-64 Apache attack helicopter. To enter the country with some level of surprise regarding the sheer amount of approaching forces, the U.S. had two EF-111A Raven electronic warfare planes jam radar signals. These forces were deployed to fight against the smaller and lesser prepared 16,000 members of the Panama Defense Forces. Seconds, 
it seemed like Muse would not get his long-awaited freedom. Then a ground vehicle from the 5th Infantry Division drove by. The Delta members signaled to the gunships flying above with an infrared strobe light. The armored personnel carrier was directed to recover the team and the former hostage. Muse would recall that the six-minute rescue effort felt much longer at the time, stating, quote, My rescue seemed like it took 15, 20, 30 minutes. The occasion marked the first successful hostage rescue by Delta Force. Loud rock and roll music for days and nights on end in the densely populated city, 
a genre of music the dictator despised. Additionally, the Joint Chiefs of Staff claimed that the music was meant to block parabolic microphones from spying on the ongoing surrender negotiations. The military dictator finally turned himself into the U.S. military on January 3, 1990, and was sent to America on an MC-130E combat Talon 1 plane to answer for his crimes. You know, um, you never really get to see an up-close and personal um, view of what they do and the dangers that they're in. If you have postmenopausal osteoporosis and a high... Unless uh, you get to find a um, podcast that shows you exactly what they have to do and how fast they have to react so thank you for listening i'm going to do an update and then i have a longer one thank you